So good evening, any of you just joining us? I'm Joel, and I'm tasked here at Heart City Church with making disciples for Jesus Christ. I'm about to read a passage from the letter of James that might surprise us. You see, there are some common beliefs in our culture today, and I mean baptized and adopted largely by our Christian culture as well. Let me list a few. Number one, there is a God, but he's not really very involved in our day-to-day unless we want him. Number two, the goal of your life on earth is both to feel good and to be good, but only you can determine what is right for you. And number three, good people go to heaven after they die. What do you think of those beliefs? If you hold to any of those, I have to warn you, the Apostle James is about to throw a grenade and explode all of those beliefs. James is about to tell us three very different things. Number one, God the Father is intimately involved in this world. Number two, the goal of your life is not feeling good now, but it is in the glory to come. And to get there, you must trust God and not your heart. Why not? Well, number three, because none of us are good. No, none of you. And our hearts cannot be trusted. What? Does does James have a low view of humanity, of our life here on earth? Not at all. James actually has a higher view of humanity. And James sees that this earth, every part of it, is meant to point us humans to something far greater. So James wants to encourage you tonight to love God, because God is good and he can be trusted. But before we turn to the word of the Lord through his servant James, let us turn to the Lord of the word by praying. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now. We pray that you will... Show us wonderful things from your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of our God from James chapter 1, verses 12 through 19a. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. So tonight we return, after a few weeks away, to the letter of James, which I have argued, yes, is about the faith that works, but I think it is better understood as the wisdom from above that enables us to understand godly living, or the wisdom that results in doing God's will 
because we have the right perspective on it, the heavenly perspective. To take in what James is saying in his letter is to put on, in a sense, wisdom goggles through which we have a different perspective on all the situations we face in life. Last time, if you remember, James provided an amazing scene with a rich man and a poor man, two people in entirely different circumstances, one who had everything, one who had nothing, and James places folks on the opposite end of the spectrum on the same level playing field. Both were called to boast in the Lord because in these, these differing situations that they were given were actually God-given temporary trials meant to actually prepare them for eternity. And eternity, the goal of life on earth, is where James now points us afterwards in verse 12. James writes, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Oh, you may notice this kind of recalls the opening of this letter where James told us to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let that steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete. In other words, like Jesus. James repeats here again in verse 12 that the Christian is not supposed to think, explosion of myth number one, that life is about feeling good now. Not that God doesn't want us to be happy, but the blessed or the happy man is the one who knows that ultimate happiness is not found here. We get tastes, yes, but James says we also get trials, testings, which don't feel good, but it is necessary. If I were to roll up my sleeves right now and to flex my muscle in front of you, there's some flabbiness. My muscles are not as strong as they should be. This is how it is with our faith. God is testing our faith in the trials. You find out just how much you're relying on your own ability, on the circumstances being how you want when a trial comes. A trial actually strengthens your faith muscles. I just lost my job. I lost the love of my life. The doctor says I'm really sick, but I'm trusting in God. I believe he's up to something, and I have to rely upon him in this moment, not myself or my circumstances. You see, God will have us go through trials in this life, but trials always have a purpose. They're God-given tests to strengthen our faith, our trust in God, and to prove our love in him, for him. You see, our life it has a goal on one hand. It's to be made perfect through trials, but secondly, notice what James says, there's also a gain at the end, a crown, a crown of life, eternal life. And this has been the goal all along, not just in the days after Jesus. You know, Jesus went to the cross in order to attain the resurrection. He went through testing, through trial to attain that. But this was actually the same promise given to Adam, the crown of life in the Garden of Eden, the very beginning. You see, God arranged our world so that we would prove our love, our trust in him. As we look forward to reward, there is a tree of life there in the Garden of Eden. God said, Adam, if you trust me and you pass the test, you will be blessed. If you don't, well, it's going to birth something called sin inside you. And it shall grow into another thing which you don't want to know about, which is death. 
You don't know what sin and death are, Adam, and you don't want to. But if you trust me, blessings and the tree of life will be yours. And God permitted the devil to test Adam and Eve. And what did they do? Well, we know. They decided to trust themselves, their senses, their hearts, their desires, and not God's promise. They decided, you realize this, to look to creation for fulfillment and not God. See, God gave us, since three tiers, this world that he made us in. God is at the top. We, as his image bearers, in the middle, and then all of creation below. And we were to worship to God, look up to him, and enjoy him, and to rejoice in him. And then all these wonderful gifts he gave us were further reasons to thanks. And the devil convinced them to turn it all the other way around. And now we look to creation for fulfillment. And ever since the fall in the garden, we feel it's normal to put our hope in what our hearts want. That feels just normal. And that is exactly the condition James is describing in verse 13. He writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This here is another grenade right in the middle of that myth that we can trust our hearts. You see, we all have a problem. James says in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted. And verse 14, each person is tempted. Is he really saying? We are all tempted to evil. See, once again, James is leveling the playing field. The only one who is not on our level is God who cannot be tempted with evil. All of us as humans are. I'll come back to James' point there in a moment, but I want to sit on this for just a second because each of us are prone to think we're good people. How do we come to that conclusion? Well, we, we look at others, right? And we evaluate them and we think, well, I'm not tempted to do that. How in the world could they think of doing that? I've never struggled with what she has. I would never dare do what that person does. Others of us actually feel the opposite. I know this. Why am I the only person who struggles so much with this sin? Why is it so much easier for him or her in life? Why is temptation so hard? Friends, James says that every person has his own desire problem. For some of us, sexual temptation, lustful thoughts wear us down each and every day. Some of us are just constantly tempted to look down on others and exalt ourselves. Some of us fight selfishness. Others are fixated on food, laziness, control, greed. There is evil in every single heart on this planet. There are not good people and bad people. Solzhenitsyn understood this when he came to witness the horrors of the Russian gulag. He says this so brilliantly. He says, Oh, if it only were so simple, thinking of good people, bad people. If there only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? God's word. He's only saying what James said long ago that we all come here with equal need, preacher included. But we all have an equal hope, 
because God has brought us together and given us his good news of his gospel. It is here in the Christian community where we don't have to put on pretenses. James will end this letter by saying, we need to confess our sins to one another, praying for one another, so that we might be healed. James says we need to be healed of our desires. And we live in a world that says, no, your desires should define and determine who you are. Your sexuality, your gender, your identity. James has a far higher view of who you are than the world. What humanity can become. That's what James is saying. There's so much more to you. But he says, we have to see, we all have a desire problem. Coming back to what I was talking about. Because I think perhaps better, it should be an over-desire problem. You see, the Greek word for desire is thumia. But James uses the word epithumia, which means over-desire or irregular desire. That is a word he uses again and again here. You see, there are things in this life, in this world, that we simply want more than we should. John Calvin says, well, the evil in our desire typically does not lie in what we want, but that we want it too much. It was not wrong that Adam and Eve desired to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God put it there as a trial, as a test, to prove their love by patience. He knew they would desire it. I believe God's plan was to give it to them so that when they passed the test, you know, then he would be able to give it at the, at the end. I believe the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would have either discovered knowledge of good and evil by passing the test or he would have given it to them at the end. The problem was that their desire for that tree became an over-desire. They desired to live for and love the creation more than they wanted to live for and love their creator. Notice how James uses the word here, lured and enticed by our over-desires. He's using fishing language here to show us how desire works. You ever gone fishing? You know what you're doing? You're lying. You're lying to the fish. You say, hey, fishy, fishy. I want to feed you, fishy, fishy. I think you're hungry. Oh, you're hungry. Look at this wonderful food I have for you. But you don't want to feed the fish, do you? That's not your point at all. No, you have a hook in that food. And the moment that fish believes you and bites, you yank your hook through that poor fishy's lips and yank him right out of the water to his destruction. Friends, that's what over-desire in our hearts is doing to us. It's lying to you. Now let me back up again to show what James is showing us when he says God tempts no one because this is actually in the Greek, it's really confusing at first. You see, the Greek word for trial is the exact same word James uses for tempt. The word translated trial in verse 2 and in verse 12 that we read is the same as tempt in verses 13 and 14 again and again. Translators are right in trying to distinguish between the two because God committed permitted trials and our own self-inflicted temptations to evil are different. But in the Greek, it sounds like a total contradiction. What gives, Joel? Here's where we need to put on our wisdom goggles. Our response determines whether it is a trial or a temptation. You see, if we see this thing as a call to steadfastness, as a call to faith, as a call to show love to God, it is a trial meant to promote steadfastness, to test your faith muscles, and lead to its end a crown of eternal life God holds forth. If we respond to this challenge by letting our over-desires lure and entice us, it's self-centered temptation, evidencing you love creation more, 
And James says, don't let that happen. It too leads you somewhere, but not to a crown of life. Verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. This is kind of like a horror movie, you know, a creature inside you that begins to grow. <laughs> this is graphic. James gives us a graphic picture of what happens. And he's talking about there's a conception, a birth, when, as it were, the sperm of temptation meets that egg of desire. Sin is birthed then. And this love child of your over-desires and this creation, it brings forth a horrible terror, death. And none of us are immune. None of us. Anybody familiar with the Bible has heard about David, a guy who wrote all these psalms. We actually read one of them to start our time together tonight. David was a man with a heart after God. David loved God and loved him so much, God looked with David on favor, turned the shepherd boy into Israel's king. He was such a good king that Israel finally experienced peace from all their enemies. David, a man with a heart for God, then found himself one day up on a roof looking down on a woman that he found to be very attractive. Bathsheba was a temptation, and the over-desire for him enticed him. It lured him, and David bit. It's one of the saddest stories in the Bible did not matter that Bathsheba was married to one of his most loyal soldiers. David called Bathsheba to his palace, got her pregnant. The man with a heart for God. But David's heart was divided just like Solzhenitsyn said. And desire and temptation birth sin. And what comes next in this story? Adultery that he could not hide led into a death spiral. With David first murdering her husband, Uriah. Later came the death of the child that was birthed. And the sword never left David's house. It's a horror what happened. One moment of temptation that he bit. Temptation and desire for sin and sin. It grew up and it brought forth all kinds of death. Friends, James is giving us a wonderful help to alert us of the danger we all face. Because we can just be so involved in life, we sometimes can just completely miss what's coming our way. It's kind of like when you're watching one of those TV shows. I remember when I was younger, you're like really into the show. And you're like, oh, and you're just so involved. And all of a sudden, warning, tornado warning coming. And it's letting you know, hey, hold on. Don't get so wrapped up in life that... You miss out on the danger which is coming your way. That's what James is trying to do. Give us here an early warning system. You see, David unsuspectingly suddenly finds himself desiring this woman. He's drawn in by his beauty. This should have been the warning at that point. Is there something wrong with her beauty? Of course not. God made women to be beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that, but alarm bells should have been going off in his head. You see, at this moment, David is no longer letting God's word shape how he thinks about this woman. It's all about what God tells us about his creation. David forgets what God commanded, particularly about married women. All David sees is the same thing Eve saw in the garden. What is desired is delicious. And Eve, 
she did the same, was no longer remembering what God said should guide her. We're going to leave out of here, friends. And as we go about our lives, there's going to be all kinds of dangers in front of us that we're going to face. We have to look at the things, the situations in our world, and always be asking ourselves this question, what does God say about this? And if God says no, and you desire it, the word for you, my friend, is not fight. The word for you is flee, run away, get away. David should have slid down the gutter pipe, get off that roof. Paul writes, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 1 Corinthians 10.12 Paul will go on to say though, in verse 13, God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. And that tells us that God is, yes, exploding myth number three, God is involved intimately in our world and in our lives. Because even when we are not, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Verse 17, every good and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. This is something we got to keep in our minds when we face temptation. We need to be thinking God is good. God is good. He does not tempt us to evil. But rather, what does James say? He gives us good gifts from above. And God's posture in giving good gifts never changes. Friends, we must be absolutely convinced that God is good all the time and all the time God is good. Why, Joel? We already know all this. Actually, because all the time the enemy is trying to dislodge that idea from your head that God is good. And he wants to replace it with this notion that we know better than God what is good for us. In times of testing, what thought comes into our heads? Is God really good? How could he allow this? Why would he keep this from me? Because I want it so much. Friends, God is asking you in those moments to trust him. He's saying, trust me, trust me. Even when he says no. It is only by trusting him that you show your love and you show your faith, your trust in his unchanging goodness. It is only when we trust that he knows better what is good for us than we know what is better that we discover he is a good father who gives good gifts. And not just some, every gift. Think about it. You actually woke up today. God gave you a good church. Do you have anything to eat today? Do you have clothes to wear? A roof over your head? Do you have a favorite fruit maybe you ate this afternoon? you have people who love you and you love them back? Think about all the good gifts God has given you. Father of lights and perfect gifts. The most perfect of all being his own son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father sent his only begotten son to deal with sin and death and the devil. And God raised Jesus from the dead in order to bring an end of the old and a start to the new. And now James, he can speak of a new cycle for the believer, a life cycle to replace the death cycle. Verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. God's will and God's word of truth break in 
to undo the over-desires and the lies that destroy us. And so, and through this, do you notice the birthing language again? We are brought forth as first fruits of a new creation. If you have heard the gospel and believed, you have been brought forth by the word of truth because of God's word, which is the truth, and show the truth of a greater reality. You are a new creation in Christ. James says that the new birth is more proof, the real proof, of our Father's good and faithful giving. Now, the first fruits is language you often hear in Scripture. They were the initial fruit that the farmers would gather before the whole harvest comes in. Our conversion is actually the first fruits of God's gracious plan to totally recreate the entire cosmos. We're the start of that. We're the foretaste of glory that will ultimately encompass all of creation. It's really mind-blowing to think about. James is telling us to rejoice. This is why we can count it all joy. You've been begotten by God. You have a sure promise, and that promise helps you to understand what our lives are about here on this earth. Think of it this way. You and I, we were like homeless folk, scrounging around in the trash for food, sleeping in a cardboard box. And one day, (laughs) the word of truth arrived. A lawyer shows up in a fancy car, stops at your box, flips up the flap, and hands you a letter. Your long-lost relative has died and has left you a huge fortune. And in one week, he's coming back with the check. Doesn't that change everything for you at that moment? Your box is still the same. The stump dumpster still stinks. But suddenly our condition doesn't seem so bad, does it? No, it's actually pretty tolerable now. Because, and we can rejoice in the trials. Smile as we shiver in the dark, in the cold. Because we can look beyond this trials in this life. Beyond the temptations to the glory which is to come. All because your relative died for you. Because Jesus Christ became poor and he died on the cross that we might become rich and live forever. And James ends by saying, Know this, my beloved brothers. For you who believe, Jesus is saying, simply remember who you are and who you belong to. And this means that we are new creations in Christ, children of the Father, and we're all on the same level playing field helping each other to glory. All of us are here, and each and every one of us walks in with a backpack full of our own trials, our own situations from the past, full of our own temptations that we struggle with, a whole lot that calls us to faith. But we're all in it together as beloved siblings, and we will make it because we're all recipients of the same grace. For you who are not yet Christ followers, James is also calling you to know something, to know something, to know the truth and not to feel something in your heart and go with that because that's what the devil wants you to believe. That's what our culture wants you to trust in. Like Cheryl Crow's song, which I heard when I was in the store yesterday. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. That's the message. Remember the next line of that song? If it makes you happy, then why the hell are you so sad? There's a reason for that. Because you can run after all the things that your heart wants. 
and you will always end up disappointed at the end. Because creation wasn't made to fill the longings for the eternal that are found in each and every human heart. And James is giving you a set of wisdom goggles so that you can see that. If you're not come to Christ yet, I would really encourage you to think about this. Not try and feel your way there. I'll close with something a former atheist came to see. When he began to realize that the problem was not his desires in this world, but his over-desires. And then came to realize that the desires he had were merely homing beacons pointing him to another world. C.S. Lewis wrote this, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Lewis continues, Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. If that is so, I must take care on the one hand never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for the something else of which they are only a kind of copy, an echo, or a mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death. I must never let it get snowed under or turned aside. I must make it the main object of life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same. I echo what Lewis says. I'm making it my life journey to pursue what my heart needs in that better country. And I hope that I've helped you today as we continue to learn from the wisdom of James. I'm more than happy to meet and pray with you after if you feel the Father of Lights is beginning to shine something new into your heart. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we just want to give you thanks for this wonderful word from, from James, who you inspired to write that not only those in the first century of the dispersion might come to understand their trials and situations of life in that difficult time, but that we one day in a small church in the 21st century in Elkhart, Indiana, that we might come to know that you have a purpose in all the trials and temptations of our life. I pray, Father, that you will help us to remember that you are good and good all the time. I pray, Lord, as we face whatever dangers are in front of us, you will be prompting us by the Holy Spirit to be asking the question of what you say about it and give us clear answers, Lord. We pray that you'll continue to protect and guard us. And lastly, Lord, I pray that we might be a community that seeks to lift one another up, to love one another, and also to recognize that none of us ever are one notch above another, but rather we're all in the same playing field working together for your glory and also for our good by the power of your spirit and through the grace of the gospel. Thank you for this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.